Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Recently, the Taneo Geopolitical Advisory and Political Risk Team issued its annual What to Watch report. And it's only fitting that our first episode of the year focuses on the complicated and challenging year ahead. So joining me for today's discussion uh, are three of my colleagues who will be familiar to many of you in the audience. Wolf Pickley is the co-president of Taneo Political Risk Advisory. It's head of research and a particular expert on Europe and Turkey. Orson Porter, appearing for the 20th time today on Taneo Insights, uh, heads up Taneo's Washington, D.C. office and government affairs practice. And Emily Stromquist uh, is a managing director and a member of the leadership team of the Political Risk Group, whose work focuses on the Middle East, Eurasia, and energy bro uh, markets broadly. So thank all three of you for joining me today. And I'll, I'll note for the audience that we are taping today's episode on Wednesday, the 10th of January, uh, as we may be discussing some events that are going to be just playing out in the in the days uh, just ahead of us here. So thanks everybody for for joining today and and maybe Wolf, let's let's sort of uh, let's sort of set the table here a little bit. Obviously, this is a a big year uh, politically. We'll get into the entire kind of global election cycle here in, in a moment. Um, but, you know, uh, we've had now uh, a few years of global economic slowdown. Nonetheless, the U.S. has been quite resilient through this. In fact, the big story, the big, you know, the big issue on Wall Street these days is when will the Fed actually be able to start the easing uh, cycle? It had looked like it might be very early this year. Maybe that's getting pushed out a little bit uh, after the most uh, the latest robust uh, economic data from the end of the year. But it feels like this kind of series we've had over recent years of everything from the Gaza war, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, January 6th, the pandemic that, you know, had seemed like a series of kind of black swans. But really what we're evolving to is just a in an era of multipolarity or even nonpolarity um, that uh, a, a heightened um, a, a heightened era of normal risk is what we're we're going to be uh, looking at. So, how would you kind of define the environment this year? It's a extremely it's an environment in, in flux uh, with lots of uncertainties ahead. Not just because of the electoral cycle that we will discuss later on, but we have two two wars going on. Uh, we have a big election in the United States, and we have uh, more than uh, 2 billion people going to the polls this year, and that is more than it has ever happened in one single year. Uh, more than 70 countries will go to the polls, and that is an environment where, if you look at the wider context, uh, and we take away for a second year from the geopolitical backdrop, but the, the, in terms of trends, uh, we see spreading liberalism, we see institution, independent institutions that have become weaker, they are under assault. We have seen more volatility in the polls. And also recently, just the election that we had a few days ago in Bangladesh and even in October in Slovakia, we have seen more disinformation and misinformation with AI playing a key role here in spreading the so-called deep fake, uh, fake tapes. Um, so the, all of these makes the world picture much more volatile and certainly uncertain for investors and, uh, and our clients. And so you alluded to this extraordinary election year. So it's kind of interesting where we seem to be in the era of autocracy and strongmen, uh, but it is the year of elections, um, as you as you point out. Um, but obviously, um, elections and free elections in, 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 in particular are only the starting point for what it means to be a democracy. And we have seen this kind of rollback um, uh, you know, of democratic norms and, 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 and democratic liberalism uh, over several years now, kind of, you know, uh, that's been the hallmark of the century th thus far. Um, but with this rise of populism and, you know, and all of the, you know, all of the uh, variables that you've just been talking about with misinformation um, and the like, is there any general comment that you can make about this extraordinary set of elections that we've got coming at us um, this year? Yeah, Including, I, I think obviously, the most important country 
uh, in terms of, you know, geopolitically, the United States, the largest democracy in the world, India, and, you know, everything kind of in between. Absolutely. And uh, on this front, I think every election is a bit of a different story. So that is, I think it would be a note, note of caution for anybody uh, watching, watching us uh, today. Um, every election is a different story because of the electoral system, the political culture. Uh, demo democracy in these days is, as you suggested, uh, under attack. Even if we have a competitive election, the context is important. For example, in India, where certainly pluralism is under, is under attack, under pressure, media pressure, use of the judiciary for political purposes. So that is a, the note of caution to note. The other, and the other point I think here in terms of wider picture, obviously the US is the, the one with the global impact, big country in terms of amount of voters, 160 million voters and so on. But there is an election with, uh, that involves a population of around 24 million people that is also very, very important in terms of global stability. And that is obviously Taiwan. And that is ahead of us. And there's going to be a, take, taking place in three days. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a very mixed uh, pot of election year. Um, some of them could be very consequential. But there are also some upside stories in this election. I think it's important to highlight. So let's, um, let's start getting down to brass tacks here. And because the Taiwan election is an important one, um, and because it is the coming up this Saturday, um, perhaps you know, and 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 our China team is a is a regular uh, re appear regularly on this program. But what are the expectations right now on uh, on how the Taiwan election may play out? And I think most importantly, um, you know, what the what you expect the Chinese reaction to be given the various scenarios. First of all, I will, I will say that the, the, the race is tight. We didn't have polls for the last 10 days, for the 10 day side of the vote, uh, because of the of, because of the local regulations. That they, our view is that Vice President Lai has got uh, a kind of, is likely to have the, uh, the upper end here. Um, but also we have one million uh, potential, we have one million new voters, first time voters, that's 6% of the total electorate in, uh, in Taiwan, which could change the outcome. And we have seen how the votes of the youth uh, can change outcomes in election in the past. But if we assume, uh, if the base case remains that lie will prevail, the other important issue to monitor here is also who will win the legislative election in Taiwan. So it's not just about the president here, but also the, 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 the legislature, because in particular, there is, a, there is a chance that Lai might prevail, but the DPP, his own party, might lose a majority. Um, so we have a different kind of scenarios here, potentially ahead of us, and obviously each one of them could trigger a different response uh, from China. Um, in terms of if we assume so, that so, so just before just before we get to that, let's just let's just level set here for the for the audience that William Lai, the vice president, represents the incumbent DPP party. He is seen uh, negatively by the mainland yes. as a as a separatist um, and closer to the uh, closer to the United States. The opposition parties, primarily the KMT, the Kuomintang. Uh, and the uh, and the TPP are you know are are competing for that opposition vote. And so what you're suggesting is is that the polls show that William Lai will likely prevail. It's a first past the post system, so he'll likely prevail. Uh, and that but 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 the, the, you could have divided government with uh, the KMT uh, taking at least a plurality um, in the in the legislature. Correct. And then there is a third party, the People's Party, that could play a bit of a swing role there. As you say, Lai has been attacked the last time, most recently on the 31st of December, by the, by the Chinese authorities, described as a, a separatist and a troublemaker. Um, even if his rhetoric during the campaign has softened a bit, um, he is basically saying that he is willing to engage on, uh, with China, but on, uh, with some precondition in terms of dignity, in terms of equality, uh, and so on. Um, so they, it, it, from the, in terms of Chinese response, a victory by Lai, uh, and and, and say if we assume that the DPP will also reconfirm its, its majority in the, in parliament, that the response we should expect a more robust response here. The timing of the response is also important here because Lai will will not be inaugurated if he wins until May. 
So no, we shouldn't expect an immediate response by the Chinese authorities, or maybe we should expect a gradual response where it goes, it might increase depending on what Lai says between victory day, if we assume that he wins, and whenever he takes over, and in his inauguration speech. So there is a timeline here in play as well to make things a bit more complicated. If we have a divided outcome where Lai prevails, in terms of the presidency, but they, the DPP fails to control a majority in parliament, then the Chinese response could be a bit milder. Maybe the Chinese will try to bypass Lai and engage with parliament where they might find that with the Kuomintang might be willing to engage, uh, basically. Uh, so there are a variety of, of options on the table here, but as I said at the very beginning, the outcome is still far from certain here. Um, so it's all, it's all to be seen, and the timelines are, are kind of stretched. And in a blatant appeal to those new voters that you just referenced, the I see that the KMT vice presidential candidate is suggesting that if the electorate votes for the KMT more friendly toward mainland China, it would de decrease geopolitical risk, and Taylor Swift would be more likely to perform in Taiwan. Um, <clears throat> well, let's move on then to the other uh well to the election of the year or so i don't even really know where to begin here but let's just let well let me let me start by asking you this big question um you know i have been meeting with um some of our foreign-based clients uh recently um who really make this kind of point that you know over the course of this year heading to november 5th we're going to have a lot of data points and then ultimately the election itself which isn't just going to be about who we're going to elect as our next president and what our legislature will look like and what the states will look like, but there are going to be more data points about what America wants to be and the role that it wants to play in the world. Would you agree that that is, I mean, the election is that important in that respect? Well, first of all, I want to say thanks for having me on. Uh, and also want to say, be very careful about the Taylor Swift jokes. Uh, comedian almost just lost his job on that one. Um, so be before I answer your question, a couple of things I want to throw out on a factual basis, just the level set where we are. We're 299 days away from the general election. Uh, we're five days away from the Iowa primary. We're two weeks away from the New Hampshire uh, primary on the 23rd of January. We're less than a month away uh, from the South Carolina primary on February 3rd. And believe it or not, uh, we're just under two months away from Super Tuesday on March 5th. Uh, so all that to say is uh, over the next two months or three months potentially, but mostly two months, uh, we will probably have a pretty good uh, case on who the GOP nominee will be. And then to answer your question, uh, where we might be going in this upcoming uh, political de debate from where the US stands on a global perspective and who that candidate is. If that candidate is Trump, uh, then uh, that question has a lot of meaning. So let, let, I, wanna, I wanna talk about some of the other things going on in Washington between now and 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 the election, but since you since you have focused on the the calendar, um, and we've got Iowa coming up uh, on Monday, uh, the final Republican debate uh, will be held tonight. Although I believe there's only two participants in that, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. But as an analyst and as somebody who watches this very carefully. Putting aside for a moment the variables like the legal challenges to Trump um, and, and, and so on, do you see a pathway for, let's say, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to actually prevail electorally uh, and, and, and achieve the, the, the nomination? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So if we just look back where Joe Biden was, Joe Biden lost the first two um, in, in his a Democratic primary, and everyone thought he was all but done. And, and then he, he ended up winning with a key endorsement from uh, Senator Clyburn, uh, uh, South Carolina. If you just go through recent presidents, Trump losing Iowa, uh, and when he ran, uh, bouncing back uh, and becoming the nominee, uh, Clinton losing Iowa badly, 
placing a close second in New Hampshire, uh, doing well on Super Tuesday, becoming the comeback kid. He wins the nomination. Uh, and you could go on with Obama, you know, down 20 or 30 points in the polls at Hillary in Iowa, lo and behold, wins and goes through the process, becoming one of two Democratic uh, uh, candidates who, who won Iowa to go on to be president. Like, it's way too early to say uh, that these uh, this thing is done. It's way too early to say uh, that <clears throat> any candidate is completely out. And I think if you really look at it, if you look at the White House, if you look at Congress, if you look at gubernatorial races, you look at mayoral elections, there are seats filled by hundreds, of, I shouldn't say thousands, but hundreds of candidates who, to your question, early in the process didn't have a chance, uh, went through the process and, and became the ultimate winner. There's a reason why, even if you're up 70 to nothing at halftime in a football game, you play the third and fourth quarter because you never know what might happen. So um, obviously the other ticking clock here uh, in early January is the is on the spending bills. Um, and that uh, we're going to hit our first, uh, I think, funding wall next Friday, the 19th of, uh, um, of January. But, you know, talk a little bit, maybe if you want to talk about those, those uh, votes specifically, we can. But, you know, just thinking about what could happen legislatively or via executive order that you would expect um, in, during this political silly season between now uh, and, and November, what can actually happen? And, you know, just as a reminder, we're coming off of a historically low action year out of Congress in 2023. I think uh, they did less than they've done in decades. But also increasingly would appear that whatever you want to call it, whatever honeymoon period the new Speaker of the House has had is kind of coming to an end. He's going to have to thread this needle like his predecessor did. And by the way, his majority is uh, even smaller than it was at the end of the year with the departures of Kevin McCarthy and George Santos. And I think some others are coming as, as well. So what what can actually happen in terms of Washington action between now and the, the election? I think that's the right question uh, to ask. And, and you can really look at it going backwards from uh, Super Tuesday or the State of the Union. So uh, the president announced last week uh, that the State of Union will be on March 7th. Uh, Super Tuesday is on March 5th. wonder why they picked the 7th. But um, there are three things that I think are likely uh, going to be the focus until then. And then after two Super Tuesday, it's going to be really hard uh, once that nominee is selected potentially for Congress to do anything other than uh, pass what I think they have to do which is, as you mentioned at the top, uh, to keep the government funded. So, you know, the, the government, parts of the government will run out of money on January 19th, as well as February 4th. There's a lot of discussion uh, happening in D.C. as we speak about a short-term CR that might kick this until March. I probably will predict it will be after uh, that State of Union, potentially after uh, that Super Tuesday date. So, uh, that is the number one uh, issue facing Congress as we speak. It's also the number one issue to see how we continue to govern, uh, whether or not uh, the speaker, uh, if he gets the CR passed, uh, will still have the votes, uh, will there be a motion closure to, to, to exonerate the speaker. Uh, there is going to be a swift discussion after that on the investigation or the potential impeachment of President Biden, as well as his son, Hunter Biden. And then you're going to move to potentially uh, things getting heated on uh, foreign aid for the Ukraine uh, uh, war and in Israel. Uh, but to answer your questions on the executive orders, I, I think the State of the Union date is probably a timeline where you will see the president move on things that he wants to highlight in that speech that he will unable, probably be unable to accomplish through a legislative manner. That could be voting rights, that could be civil rights issue, that could be additional environmental mandates, as well as uh, <clears throat> things uh, pertaining uh, to the war uh, and, and, and finding means to go around Congress to supply military support, particularly in Israel and Ukraine. Yesterday, President Trump was in court in Washington 
uh, and we saw and witnessed a rather extraordinary um, argument on his lawyer's part about the extent of presidential immunity. But I want to focus on a comment that President Trump made coming out of that, which was <clears throat> warning of bedlam if um, these prosecutions or persecutions in his mind um, were to continue. And I guess the question I have is, you know, as you talk in Washington and official circles in Washington in particular, how concerned are they about political violence this year uh, in, in, in this election cycle? I wouldn't say as concerned as, as, as the media may be reporting. Um, I, I think clo as the closer we get to uh, that general election, then I think those discussions uh, get a little bit more real in D.C. Uh, but, you know, there's a high uh, probability of something that could happen between now and then. And law enforcement here is definitely uh, going out of the way to make certain to, to have this a fair and safe election. We've, we've seen some of the threats to election, election officials in Georgia uh, with uh, things in the mail, et cetera, et cetera. So the threat level is real, uh, but I don't think things will heat up until you see the masses go to the polls and then what you're asking becomes a, a, a real legitimate concern. So you engage on a daily basis with the government affairs office of some of the largest corporations in, in the country and, and in the world, frankly. Um, historically and typically, uh, a lot of companies would sort of play play both sides, right? Going into an, an election, you want to be on good terms with both sides. Um, heading into conventions, you want to be on good terms with both sides and, and the like. But, you know, going back to what I said at the top, where... Um, you know, we may be sending a sign about what role America wants to play in the world. And considering that the world that we seem to be trying to evolve away from, or certain um, candidates want to evolve away from, which is the US-led unipolar globalized system, which is also the system that allowed the multinational corporation to become the preeminent economic actor in the world. In other words, we would be moving away from that. We would be reducing the total available market available to companies in a sense. Do you feel like they are increasingly feeling like they will have to take a side in this cycle? They'll avoid taking sides at all? Do you see any different emerging behavior on corporate part heading into yeah. this election? I just did a, a little uh, section on this on LinkedIn recently where I talked about the three things uh, corporate America should be thinking about in this uh, election cycle. And, and, and one of was, you know, be mindful uh, that speed kills and there's nothing wrong with using your brakes. Another was uh, stay true to your brand principles. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. And, and the last one was, uh, you know, making friends early is a good insurance policy for when you have a crisis. I, I think to answer your question is uh, corporate America over the last several months or even year the last year has you've seen a pullback. Uh, you've seen uh, uh, the discussion on DE and I become a political discussion. You've seen the discussion on uh, crime potentially with uh, what's happening in these metropolitan areas becoming a political discussion. You'll see AI. So I would forecast that you will continue to see not just in DC, but globally uh, corporations pulling back uh, on things that don't speak to uh, their brand principles, but uh, definitely not trying to be a target uh, during the political cycle, uh, which you saw uh, it become a big deal in the Florida gubernatorial race with Disney, et cetera, et cetera. No one wants to be on that list. The woke discussion isn't uh, as big as it once was, but the, the issues that the woke discussion highlighted are still big issues within Congress uh, and, and corporations uh, rightly are trying to lead by example, uh, but not necessarily by press releases uh, making political statements. Thanks for the uh, blatant promotion of your performance on another platform. But um, I, <laughs> I, final, final question from me before we, we, we move on. And, and the segue is going to be, you, you referenced it a few minutes ago with regards to funding for Ukraine. But in terms of, again, the, the, the sort of what's what's possible legislatively, a lot of these things are are contingent on each other, right? Ukraine funding, 
action at the southern border and on 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 uncontrolled migration into the country like do you think where do you think we are and where we can get on on these two items here in the near term especially because from ukraine's perspective clearly the clock is is ticking and we're already starting to see the on battlefield um uh you know um reality of having to ration out um you know ammunition and, and armaments I think what you saw happen before Congress returns is a pretty indi good indication of where, particularly the Republican House is uh, and where Congress may be. You had nearly 40 Republican senators at the border, uh, you know, blasting the administration for not uh, being aggressive enough. Uh, those 40 members weren't uh, on a codel to the Ukraine. Those 40 members didn't go to Israel. They went to the border. Uh, because they knew uh, that would be and is the, 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 the thing that the media will cover, but most importantly, uh, their constituency cares most about. So, uh, you know, you, you heard me say this a thousand times, at least 20 times since I've been on the show, uh, press drives policy. Uh, and right now, uh, press <clears throat> in the media uh, isn't really doing the nightly drip of what's happening in Ukraine nor of late uh, in Israel, but uh, once you get through uh, what's happening with the general or what happened in Trump's court date, uh, the, the shift will move towards uh, immigration. So to answer your question, uh, until they figure out what they're gonna do on government funding, uh, until they reach some sort of compromise in this immigration discussion, unfortunately, I think the funding for Ukraine and, and Israel will be placed on the back burner. So that's a perfect segue uh, to to Emily. And, you know, I think, Emily, everything that Warson's just been talking about here should indicate to us that uh, Ukraine, certainly, but even Israel um, is going to go further below the fold and onto, you know, off of the front page as we go through this election cycle, at least in terms of media here in in the United States. And clearly, American attitude and American support politically and militarily and economically in both of these cases is going to be is going to be essential to, you know, how they play out over the course of this year. So I think it is worth exploring. These are two of the major stories we've been talking about for, you know, for the better part of the last two years and for the better part of the last three, four months now uh, in the Israel case. So uh, just looking at what the prospects are. And maybe we can start with Russia, Ukraine, because uh, because Orson brought it up specifically. And I mean, you know, we are in this kind of um, hot stalemate or what you might whatever you might want to call it. But I guess given where we are now on the battlefield, politically, economically, so on and so forth, where do Putin and Zelensky kind of stand? What's possible? What do you see playing out over the course of this year? And what are those ramifications then going to be for the global economy and global markets? Yeah, absolutely. Um Look, and, you know, I think just sort of bottom line on the, the funding issue, certainly, you know, and, and we'll discuss this with Ukraine, it's absolutely a, a critical issue. I think we'll, we'll get into some of the Israel-Gaza stuff. I think there there's probably some issues that can escalate that are sort of beyond U.S. control or will, um, depending on, on sort of how those play out in the months ahead. But, you know, looking first at, at the Ukraine issue, you know, very little has changed recently on the front lines. Neither side is going to be able to make kind of any kind of breakthrough for the foreseeable future. But I think, you know, probably these, we are seeing increasingly references to uh, this being some kind of stalemate. And that's not necessarily accurate, I would say. I think some of that is is also that sort of conversation is also fueling this, this um, you know, fatigue in Western capitals about continuing to fund Ukraine. But I think the reality looking at this year is that 2024 could, in fact, be, you know, quite a pivotal year for what happens in Ukraine and how things play out. Um, you know, at the moment, Russia and Ukraine are both working very hard to rebuild their offensive capacities. Uh, that includes, you know, munitions, training fighters. And these are, you know, significant factors that I think would would shape the trajectory of this conflict. You know, it appears that really at this juncture, neither Putin nor Zelensky has much appetite nor public support uh, to go to the negotiating table. Um, I think any talks uh, were they to happen would be through, you know, lower channels down the chain of command, not sort of immediately between those two two leaders right now. And beyond that, we really have to emphasize that talks do not at all equate any kind of ceasefire uh, at this point. And I think, you know, that's that's the critical the critical point to note. 
um, you know, Russia really hasn't changed its objectives whatsoever in Ukraine. And I think kind of given a window of opportunity, it would gladly, you know, continue to uh, progress in Ukraine and continue to sort of assert itself in Ukraine. And, um, you know, that, that's, you know, not going to change for the foreseeable future. Um, and, you know, I think probably, you know, in that respect as well, talks are unlikely at least until after um, of any sort, until at least after the, the Russian elections. Um, and, you know, even then Putin's going to be pursuing maximalist demands. So, I mean, what does this mean? And from the funding perspective, Ukraine needs a lot more economic assistance. It needs a lot more military assistance. But it also really increasingly has to pivot away from this offensive strategy that it's been pursuing, um, focus on more of a defensive one. It's been blasting through, you know, a lot of the aid that's being sent by the West, and it's not necessarily a sustainable approach at this point. So, um, you know, some kind of a defensive strategy is much more likely right now to get it through 2024 um, and, and sort of keep itself in this conflict for longer. I think, you know, the, the really big question here is whether, you know, Congress can go ahead and approve an aid package for Ukraine. Orson's been through the complexities of that. But, you know, this would really be kind of the the, the clinch that would help, you know, Ukraine fortify its its defenses. So this really was, rests with the U.S., um, with the West generally, to help with these sort of rebuilding of defenses in the year ahead. And, you know, I think if Ukraine can make it through 2024, it's more likely that, you know, it could rebuild its offensive in 2025. It can also gain leverage over Russia, um, you know, to work toward negotiations, to work toward an eventual peace deal. Um, and, and, you know, if that can be done, if Ukraine can make it through 2024 with Western support, this may put it in a better position to force Russia to sort of reassess how much sort of more it's willing to endure, what it's willing to tolerate in Ukraine. Um, you know, at the moment, Putin's certainly emboldened. He sees the Ukrainian offensive weakening. He sees, you know, Western support, you know, slowly sliding. And, you know, at this point, it just doesn't look good for Ukraine to, to sort of push to regain Donbass and Crimea. So I think, you know, ultimately, we are in a better place if Ukraine can pursue negotiations rather than sort of continued fighting on the battlefield. But this Western support is absolutely critical to get us through to that point even. And that could take, you know, the better part of this year. And it's worth noting that um, we've had instances in in history where countries have not been able to regain their territorial integrity and have done quite well. No better example than South Korea, who remains in a state of war with North Korea and then one of the most successful economies in the world coming out of the Korean conflict. And and frankly, West Germany, um, you know, uh, entered into the precursors of the U European Union and entered into NATO um, while East uh, Germany was still in the Soviet in the Soviet bloc. Um, but having said all of that, is it fair to say that though in the environment that the, you've just described, there are those who would argue that time plays in Putin's uh, to Putin's hands, uh, that Putin um, certainly wants to get through not only his own own election, and he may actually mobilize more uh, more forces. And I believe we're we're looking at so far about 500,000 Russian casualties in in, in Ukraine. Um, but but that also he would be hoping for um, a an election outcome in the United States that would provide him with a green light um, to essentially do what he you know do what he wants and, and and go on to the offensive. So a I want to know if you agree with that. But b is there any sign of any kind of of pressure um, on on Putin uh, at all within within Russia? Because I know obviously they've got a formidable propaganda machine that's going to turn all of this into you know, a holy war and essentially, you know, um, that they are winning effectively. But by any stretch of the imagination, he's failed in most of his objectives here. So is there any growing pressure on him that's discernible uh, out there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, what what you're saying is is correct. Like, this is about the long game for him. There's a lot of factors this year, you know, elections funding that will very much determine how much and the degree to which, you know, Russia can achieve its objectives here. I think, you know, that that sort of given the sort of, you know, rounds of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, Russia has been incredibly resilient. I think, you know, this has sort of sustained some degree of public support. Um, you know, certainly the conflict itself has basically become Putin's raison d'etre. Um, you know, and and I guess all said, you know, the Russian economy is doing has, has to some degree kind of defied expectations. It's on wartime footing production of missiles and kind of other instruments of, of electronic warfare are now, you know, have, have well surpassed pre-war pre levels. Um, and, you know, constitutionally, Putin can run not only this this spring, but again, six years from now. And this is a really, you know, 
he's in his early 70s, you know, health sort of concerns down the road aside, he has quite a long run ahead of him, you know, should things kind of continue as they are. And I think, you know, this conflict in in Ukraine is a significant part of, of that narrative and Putin's strength right now. So I don't see relenting. I don't see sort of much public opposition having any meaningful effect in Russia at the moment. Um, and, you know, all of that is, is you know, as we've, we've sort of repeatedly discussed today, very heavily dependent on, you know, what kind of funding ultimately ends up in Ukraine. So before we before we pivot to the Middle East, I want to bring Wolf back into the conversation here because it seems Wolf that you know for years for several years now. I mean, certainly the Trump administration focused attention in in Europe about the shortcomings of their own um, security uh, and, and what they're what they're doing for themselves on that front, the amount of money that they're putting toward it, and having a, for, a unified foreign policy and and the like. And then that was obviously then further accelerated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In an environment where it looks like Washington support is questionable or maybe slowing down or maybe delayed or what have you, what what are the prospects in your view of, of Europe stepping up um, further on this front or will they, I mean, this is kind of, this is where the rubber hits the road on this argument yeah. in a way or, or, or what? The prospects are, think, I think they are very minimal. At best, what Europe can do is to throw money but certainly there is no ability from the European side uh, to supply the weapons that uh, um, that Ukraine needs, specifically the artillery ammunition more than anything else right now. Um, the production is not there. The target of 1 million by the end of 24 is, uh, is likely to be missed by a, by a significant margin. And politically, things are getting even more complicated in Europe, not to mention that we have an election in Europe as well. It's not just in the US. We have European election. The commission will be out of play, out of office for a few months at least. Um, so they, it doesn't look good. And indeed, in that sense, uh, what we have seen uh, is that Eastern European countries, the concerns about the, the trajectory of the war coming back on the radar screen of countries uh, in Eastern Europe uh, concerned that uh, if Putin managed to prevail this, maybe by playing the long game, as Emily has suggested, uh, it's not gonna stop there. And that is what we have learned from Putin, starting from Georgia 2008, uh, Ukraine 2014, then it was Syria, and now is Ukraine again. Um, so that is where certainly there is no ability from the European side to provide the 75% of weapons that uh, you, the U.S. has been providing uh, since the conflict started. So let's pivot now to the Middle East, uh, Emily. Um, we are about just over three months um, into the uh, in, into the this war. Um, essentially, um, we've all seen the pictures. It does seem that there's a bit of a pivot occurring now, or an evolution, let's say, to the next. Uh, to the next stage of this war as kind of the 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 all-out air and ground assault um, uh, that Israel is imposing on Gaza is starting to sort of pivot it to a more uh, targeted um, and surgical approach. And then certainly we have seen uh, actions that they have taken uh, against Hamas figures in, in Beirut of late and, and the like. So a couple of questions. And just to put this into perspective for everybody yet again, I know everybody's kind of seen this, but in terms, and we're talking about small places here in a, in a way, and I think the context of, uh, of of this on the psyche of um, uh, of Israelis and Palestinians alike is, is 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 you know it's sort of put in stark contrast. When you think about the twelve hundred Israelis killed on October seventh, the equivalent of that in the United States would be about thirty five thousand, or about basically ten times the impact of uh, of nine eleven. Um, and now, with essentially you know one percent of the Palestinian population in Gaza having been killed. Um, you know, that's a three and a half million people dying in the United States in in, in three months. So just to put that into, into perspective, as we as we as, as this as this war evolves, the big risk that you've been talking about for a long time has been um, whether there will be escalation uh, beyond the theater that's currently uh, involved, um, the the biggest risk always seems to be with Lebanon and um, and Iran engaging its Hezbollah proxy into this war. Um, but you know, increasingly, uh, with um, just in the last twenty four hours, we've had 
U.S. military intercepts some 21 missiles uh, from Houthi rebels onto Red Sea shipping. Um, you know, how do you how do you see are, are you getting more concerned about the international escalation of this war and how what's the risk of both the U.S. and Iran potentially being drawn directly into this conflict militarily? Yeah, I mean, certainly, yes, I'm I'm concerned, and I think that risk is growing. Uh, and just to take kind of a quick step back, you know, obviously, you know, Israel-Palestine issues are nothing new. This is a, a long historical conflict. I think what's new in this particular round is that there's a lot of compounding factors, not just in the immediate region, but across the wider region, too, that have made all of all of this conflict and, and negotiations much more difficult. That includes, you know, factors like Netanyahu aligning with the far right, the failure of the JCPOA negotiations with Iran, drawback of U.S. security presence in the region, Abraham Accords. These were significant shifts in tide across the region that have made sort of all of these issues, you know, this time around that much more difficult. And I think in light of this, um, you know, Israel still stuck very much on, on sort of the horrific events of October 7. And Iranian proxies are feel, you know, emboldened and feel they're in a position to, to sort of capitalize on a potential opening there of, of, you know, what was perceived as Israeli weakness. So in light of this, yes, I think, you know, the the escalation risk is is considerable and you have to consider this holistically as a conflict between Israel and, you know, sort of by default also, you know, U.S. and, and U.S. support and direction and then Iranian regional proxies. And, you know, as you said, you sort of listed them here. This is, you know, Hezbollah at the at the Israel-Lebanon border, proxies in Iraq and Syria, and, you know, the, the Houthis in Yemen. And I think probably most are, are specifically focused at the moment on, on the border with Lebanon, which is understandable given, you know, in particular Israeli strikes on, on uh, IRGC operatives in Lebanon over the past, you know, week or so. Um, things certainly could escalate there quickly. But I think it's also worth a note that, you know, the Houthis in particular are a wild card and, you know, they're a common link in broader regional dynamics as well. You know, the group is an Iranian proxy to some degree. They've been kind of a thorn in the side of, of the Saudis as well. Um, just days before this conflict started, Saudi was trying to pursue a peace deal with the Houthis that would have dovetailed very well with Iranian rapprochement. Um, and, you know, I think beyond that sort of in parallel, the fact that that, you know, Saudi was also pursuing you know, some kind of normalization with Israel and, and a U.S. security deal. These things didn't align all that well. And I think this is why, you know, the Houthi question in particular is especially high stakes. It's a high stakes variable. And that's one where, you know, while the Gulf has managed to sort of protect its investment climate and, and keep an arm's length, you know, this could you know, be the kind of variable that would drag them in. So just sort of quick, what does that mean then for proxies and escalation risks in 2024? I think, you know, to answer your, your final question there, um, it's going to be increasingly difficult for Iran to kind of maintain this plausible deniability vis-a-vis uh, -vis the actions of its proxies. Uh, I think impacts on commercial shipping in particular are going to be, you know, a very significant um, variable to watch. You know, U.S. and its allies could have to actually move, you know, if these attacks continue to escalate to actually striking, you know, from point of origin, which could be a, a significant escalation risk that draws the U.S. and allies in. And I think, you know, of note, and you're not hearing much talk about this, but I, I really think, you know, you can't overlook the possibility that Iranian-backed actors could also start to target the Strait of Hormuz. Historically, this has been something that has been done in previous conflicts. It can propose a sort of a significant additional risk to shipping and commerce through the region. And, you know, I, I think sort of as things escalate, um, as Iran, as the U.S. continue to sort of be involved, uh, this this can't be overlooked. And we have to sort of consider the, the sort of wider supply chain and, and commercial risks that would come with that. So the... Um... You know, as this war continues to play out, and even notwithstanding that escalation risk that you're talking about, um, there are those out there, including the United States, that are starting to contemplate what the the day after uh, looks like, a day after the war effectively uh, effectively ends. In fact, the only person who seems to not want to talk about that is Netanyahu. But this this notion that it continues to be October eighth in 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 Israel, the longer this goes on, you know, can't you know we have to sort of start. To, start to turn away and think about where things are uh, where things are headed and indeed secretary blinken just in the last uh, 48 hours has been talking about reviving the israel saudi arabia deal in exchange for israeli pursuit of the two state solution um and 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 embrace of it and like um 
where do you think we are and head, are heading right now on this kind of um, ultimate uh, political solution um, and 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 sort of you know governance of, of of Gaza and provision for the Palestinian people? Yeah, I mean, look if you if you look at recent history, that's a difficult question. You know, it depends how you look at the two state solution and and sort of its its long term viability. I think, you know, recent talks just, just this week between Abbas and Blinken you know, were quite tense. I think there's a lot of question about, you know, who would be the right actor to sort of step in in Gaza after all of this. Um, you know, a vacuum there is certainly equally as dangerous as, as sort of any other deal. But one of the big sticking points, you know, and, and this sort of remains a, a significant issue, you know, both sides could probably get to a point where they can talk about hostage and prisoner exchanges, ceasefires, et cetera. One of the big issues is what do you do with the um, with the Hamas leaders who are still inside of Gaza? And, you know, Israel has made it very clear that they are not content with the solution where those leaders stay in Gaza. That's far too great a risk for, for you know, uh, reconvening of, of any kind of militant groups inside of, of the territory. So I think that's going to be a very difficult um, issue to resolve. And, and that could continue to kind of complicate and delay any kind of peace deal. So at this stage, I think a day after is still a very difficult uh, discussion to be having. There's a lot of disparate actors, you know, between U.S., Qatar, Egypt. There's a lot of different interests involved in how this plays out and, and the ultimate kind of resolution. So, you know, I think as, as sort of things quiet down a little bit and surgical strikes become more the norm for the Israeli approach, that may open, you know, some opportunities to discuss this. But right now it's it's very, you know, complicated to even try to guess what that's going to look like. Okay, so I'm conscious of the clock, and in a few minutes here, Wolf, I'm going to put you on the spot, and we're going to do a lightning round around the world. But before I do, Wolf and Orson, I'd be remiss to not bring up the single, probably largest, long-term geopolitical um, dynamic out there, which, of course, is the U.S.-China relationship. Um, and, you know, after a steady deterioration over much of last year, it would appear that a floor has been put under that relationship following the Biden-Chi meeting in San Francisco, uh, in, in November, you've started to see some of the working groups come together. You have started to see a resumption of military to military contact and some uh, and some ratcheting down of, uh, of some of the, the, the close contact militarily that we've seen in the South China Sea and Taiwan Straits. Um, but having said that, the rhetoric is going to be heating up in the U.S. and, and, and everybody's going to be trying to out-hawk each other. And meanwhile, President Xi is dealing with a challenging economic, challenging demographic situation. Um, and, you know, American businesses are kind of caught in the middle here um, in terms of what both sides want, how open China is to them. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, investigations and and sort of raids of, uh, of Western consulting firms and the like, a lot of uncertainty there. And yet the market remains a, a gigantic one and it remains an integral part of the global supply chain. So, can you guys talk a little bit about, or maybe Wolf, maybe I'll start with you, talk a little bit about the sort of the dynamic that you see right now. And then, you know, and then Orson, let's, let's talk about the U.S. perspective on this, particularly um, as we go through the, the election year, though I have to imagine that to some degree, the Chinese are sophisticated enough to be sensitive to the, to the difference between political election year rhetoric versus, you know, actual policy decision making. But Wolf, let's, let's start with you. Sure. I think if you look at the broader U.S.-China ties, the ties, the expectation is that we are not going to see dramatic changes over 2024. As you alluded, I don't think there is an interest from either side to leave behind the guardrails that were kind of established in San Francisco when President Biden and Xi met on the side of the APEC meeting. Um, Xi is focused on the domestic uh, yeah, the, the economy is not doing well. There is a huge question mark whether can actually actually they can improve it over 2024. Difficult policy policy choices will have to be make made there. And what are key preferences remains unclear. The U.S., as we have heard from Orson, is going to be self-absorbing this long electoral cycle. Uh, so we should we do shouldn't expect significant change. The relationship remains a difficult one. There is no much, uh, you know, it's a systemic competition, as Biden put it. There is no much trust, but I don't think there is an interest in escalating. There are potential flashpoints. We mentioned Taiwan. 
The South China Sea is another one. Um, China and the, the big electoral cycle in the world and the potential interference is another one where we might have sandal investigations, scandals coming out. Uh, but overall, I think when we look at the two side, there isn't much of a, um, a, a, an incentive here uh, to, to escalate the, the situation uh, again. And Orson? Yeah, I think, you know, bottom line, if, if you don't have a plan for the day after election uh, on the corporate side of what your China policy uh, is going to be and what, how is it going to affect your business, you're really missing out. I think uh, whether it's uh, a Republican winner, whether it's Biden, uh, you could see a sea change in Congress. Uh, you could see the House flip. You could see the Senate flip. A lot of things can happen. But one thing I can guarantee you that uh, even though things are quiet today, uh, the likelihood of a shift after the election uh, is high. Uh, so you know, the, the thing that I would say is, yes, uh, you know, there's a whole lot going on in the U.S. Uh, yes, both sides have decided uh, to take a chill pill, as they say. Uh, but the day after the election, uh, re, you know, depending upon who is in the White House and, and who controls those cham chambers of Congress, uh, you could see some massive legislative uh, changes go through related to our, our trade with China, as well as uh, human rights, military, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I would urge all clients and listeners to get prepared for what you know China policy may look like after the election, which I think will be a lot different than today. Yeah, got it. Okay, Wolf, let's do it. So you ready? Let's uh, let's do a, uh, a round the world. I'm going to tee you up here on a few things, and a lot of these are going to be election uh, election related uh because as we said at the top we've got a big um election year globally here but let's let's kind of let's start in asia um let's start in asia we've got a big indonesian election coming up here in the next month or so but the single largest election in the world is going to be uh is going to be in india a country that where where we are seeing a lot of renewed attention obviously as uh, as companies and countries look to hedge against china and to play play off china uh, but at the same time, we have seen a deterioration of democratic norms and greater sectarianism in um, uh, in in India um, as well. And then and then and then finally, at least in the developed markets, you've also got the J uh, Japanese LDP uh, leadership, um, which could see a change in premiership in, in in Japan as well at some point this year. So, talk about the the Asian dynamic here a little bit. Uh, Modi remains extremely popular in India, likely to win a third term. Um, despite what you just alluded to, so this democracy suffering, pluralism under pressure and so on, and despite the fact that the opposition has created an alliance comprised of 28 parties to try to, uh, to, try to mount a challenge. What the, the bigger question is whether the BJP of Modi will, will see some seats uh, losses in, in parliament, basically. Yeah. But that, that is the outcome. And in terms of what happened after, I think it's going to be more of the same in terms of the, the India role in the world. Not much, so much uh, very keen on multilateral deals, more keener on bilateral deals and so on. So it's more about policy continuity there. Uh, basically. In terms of Indonesia, the election is very contested. Uh, the front runner, the defense minister Prabowo, has been suffering. The, 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 latest, the latest debate was not particularly successful. So there is a chance here for, uh, for the opposition parties to, to mount a challenge. And again, we are talking about 200 million people voting. This is a big one, the fourth largest popular country in the world in terms of population, um, basically. And certainly a, a, a testament to, to a country that has moved 25 years ago away from dictatorship. Uh, so we were talking about democratic backsliding, but also, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there are some bright spots here. All right, let's let's pivot uh, to Europe then, um, and 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 start actually first. Let's start in the United Kingdom, where you know after after years and years, it looks like the Tory Party has finally run its course, and Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party is election to lose at some point this year. Though I suspect that Prime Minister Sunak is going to try to strategically position this election to his bet, you know, to minimize the losses or 
or even uh, squeak through somehow. But what, how do you see the UK election dynamic? Um, as you mentioned, it's just a question of how big the majority of the Labour Party will be at this point. Uh, when we look at the uh, polls, the average of polls, there is a margin of 18 percentage points, I add. Um, timing of the election, most likely in the autumn, unless we see a miraculous uh, revival of the Tory fortunes, which is, I think, is very unlikely. I don't see much strategy from Sunak here. They, there are a couple of issues to consider here, leaving aside the polls for, for, for the clients, is a question of distribution of votes. Uh, because with the first pass of the post-electoral system in the UK, um, the distribution of votes is almost as important as the share of votes that you, that you get. To put into, into figures here, in 2005, the Labour Party, with a 3% margin, secure a majority of 66 seats. In 2010, the Tories, with a margin of 7%, they, they were short a majority of, for 20 seats. So let's look at the polls, but the distribution of votes here is critical. Right, in terms of the European, European election, I we will see lots of noise about Eurosceptic radical wing parties doing uh, better. Yes, they will do better, but at best they will get one fourth of the seats in the European Parliament, meaning that the centrist pro-European parties from the Social Democratic Group, the PPE, the Liberals and the Greens will continue to keep a majority in the European Parliament. The question is, would be how cohesive this group is so a noisy election but not much drama there frankly just uh but but looking at some of the member states then and i know you know the uh, the, the the european parliament election is the sort of the big one for this uh for this year but clearly this kind of uh battle for the heart and soul of populism and so on and so forth is playing out in europe just as it is in the united states we have just seen just yesterday president macron replaced his prime minister and trying to to revive um, you know, his 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 party's fortunes against a, a you know, a resurgent uh, Marine Le Pen party. Uh, we have seen the rightward shift in the election that has not yet yielded a government, I believe, in the Netherlands. Right. Yeah. Um, we have seen um, the the rightward tilt in 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 Italy. Um, you've got, um, you know, the the a surging AFD in in, in Germany, Germany. Yes. sort of increased borderline violent protest uh just in the last week in um in germany and but then counter that you know you've seen more of a a a move back toward the center in a country like poland um in the last year yes. so where, where, talk about the the um you know the sort of the the member state dynamic um and and european politics I think when we look at member states, it's as I alluded to earlier, you need to look at the specific circumstances. We have countries where even if, uh, let's say, look at the France, where a Le Pen threat looks uh, more um, tangible now than in the past, you need to look at the electoral system. You need to look at the political culture. So every country is a bit, is a bit of a different story here. In the Netherlands, yes. Uh, the right-wing party, Juan Wilders, is likely to be, is, is, is the number one right now, but is a country where we have seen lots of consensual politics, where and even him will be forced into a coalition. So if, there, there are different stories here. We have heard about populism, you know, being on the, on the, on the, on the high side. Then, he, then there were rumors that he disappeared, obviously wrong, when Macron, for example, won the election and looking at the outcome of the election in Germany, now is kind of coming back. The, the issue is that the electoral system and the electoral preferences are extremely volatile, has become much more difficult to predict the outcome of election. Voters are making up their mind uh, and very late in uh, uh, very close to the to voting day. So it's becoming more difficult to, to interpret that. Uh, but each country is a different story. In terms of European election, the other big story is, is the turnout. The European election do not attract lots of voters, uh, generally speaking. So the, the challenge will be for these right-wing parties actually to mobilize voters to make sure that they go and bother to vote in uh, basically in June. So if we're talking about the uh, the the end of um, of Tory politics as we know it in the UK. What is even more dramatic and looming out there is the end of ANC dominance in South Africa for the first time since the Mandela era. So how talk a little bit about that important election this year? 
30 years basically after Mandela and the ANC ended the white rule in uh, South Africa when they won 69% of the votes in 2004. And now they are potentially facing, the ANC is facing losing its, uh, its majority, basically. Uh, that is a result of mismanagement of the economy, corruption, lack of accountability, inability to run basic services like energy and transport. And this has been accumulating over, over the years. The advantage of the party is still that the opposition is not particularly, not much better, uh, but there is a challenge there. So it would be, to sum it up, a complete disaster if they fall below 45% of the votes. That will create all sorts of shenanigans within the party and raise question mark about governance of the country. Uh, if it stays behind, above 45%, it's still a very bad uh, outcome. Uh, but they will be, they could try to look for a coalition partner, and I think from the market perspective, from the client, from the investor perspective, that that potentially could be the silver lining, where the NC is forced into a coalition with the liberal of the EA, and maybe that will, uh, will 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 provide a better quality of governance in South Africa. Looking uh, looking ahead, basically. And finally, super fast on uh, on Latin America uh, on two two points. One, the only prediction I'll make on Mexico is it's going to have a woman president. Um, but secondly, is I guess Argentina, where we're seeing one of the biggest kind of tests um, yes. uh, there in the world today, uh, with an, 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 a very unorthodox new president. Although he seems to be pulling back from some of his most heterodox kind of uh, policy uh, policies that he had run on. But uh, talk about so we've got a big election uh, in Mexico. And this big experiment in Argentina, Mexico. Yes, presidential election where most likely uh, Claudia Sheinbaum will prevail, as you mentioned. Woman, also a woman, a main competitor. So there would be a landmark uh, election for uh, for Mexico, but also congressional election. And the question there is whether Morena, the party of AMLO, the current president, who remains very popular, will secure a two-third majority. AMLO has been dreaming about that in order to change the constitution, specific relation to the judiciary, the energy sector. So they want to watch there more than the presidential election per se is actually what, what is the outcome of the of the parliamentary election. Also because there will be a month before the new president takes over. So we could have AMLO and the new two-third majority in, 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 in parliament in Mexico. Um, in terms of Argentina, let's look on the 24th of January is the first big general strike. Uh, it's an extremely ambitious program by Malay, uh, but there is no much appetite for much of what is suggested. So there, there is a huge question mark here about the ability to push ahead. It doesn't have a parliamentary majority. For, uh, it is, uh, we have seen so far only one president in Argentina been able to complete his term in office, that was Macri. Let's see whether Millet can succeed on that front. Uh, that the challenge is just starting now. So I want to close today by asking you, Emily, about you know at the very outset we talked about the kind of evolving global picture out there uh, to this less uh, to a multipolar world, and everything that the three of you have been talking about today kind of fits into uh, into into that paradigm, um, and so therefore. The kind of the macro picture that companies um, uh, that are operating globally uh, have to is in greater flux uh, with greater uncertainty than than most you know CEOs came into office thinking that they were going to be experiencing and having to operate within. So, given that context, how should companies really be? Not what should they think about all of these? That's one of the reasons why they talk to people like you. But how should they be thinking internally, structurally? Uh, and how should they approach this changing environment, in your view? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think given this past hour of discussion, one of the biggest dangers is just getting lost in the day to day and sort of these short term implications and changes, you know, inherent in each of these events. And, you know, the risk is is losing sight, as you're saying, of the big picture. And I think, you know, it's these long term high impact events, you know, that that are shaping sort of a lot of these individual events at the moment you know, that, that are, are sort of much more significant in terms of, of operations and how companies strategically need to think about, you know, their positioning in the world and, and you know, how they continue to develop their business. 
And so, you know, I think, you know, for us always a, a very useful exercise and, and, you know, we see this a lot is the, the use of robust scenario planning. And it's, it's, you know, can't emphasize enough how important that is to CEOs um, to really be thinking about these, these very high impact events. And those are the ones that are going to be, you know, much more um, of, of, a, of a kind of essential element to consider for, for companies. And I think, you know, we're not talking about, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're talking these big picture things, you know, the evolution of US-China relations, how changes in the political landscape in the US and Europe change transatlantic rate relations. These are the kinds of issues that really, you know, are going to be shaping the future for companies and, and you know, ultimately how well they can operate across, you know, international lines. So, you know, I think really this this scenario planning type of thinking is is absolutely essential in times like these. And, and to be sure, we're not talking about just a playbook of how to react to these things. It is testing yeah. your own internal hypotheses and institutional biases that inevitably set in in, in, in any organization uh, to make sure that uh, that uh, leadership teams and boards alike are, uh, are aligned. Um, as Wolf said at the very beginning, um, one of the key hallmarks of this year, of course, and complicating this for voters and companies alike is going to be misinformation, fake news, and the like. How you navigate all of that is going to be uh, is one of the reasons why the three guests I've had with me today are are here um, to help see through that to find the signal in all of the uh, in all of the noise. Um, all three of them contributed to, um, and much of this conversation is derived from what was in our What to Watch in 2024 piece um, that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you have not uh, received it and would like to, please reach out to us. Uh, at Taneo Insights at Taneo.com. Uh, we will be back uh, in a couple of weeks with our next edition of Taneo Insights. But until then, I want to thank Wolf Peakley, Emily Stromquist, and, and Orson Porter for their participation today. Um, it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a challenging year, so buckle up. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Taneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at Taneo Insights at Taneo.com. See you next time.